Well, as I mentioned earlier in the service, today we are starting a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. It's this beautiful, incredibly artistically written little short story right in the midst of the Old Testament with these huge stories, stories of kingdoms rising and falling, empires crumbling, God's deliverance of his people in the Exodus, these these incredibly large stories. We find this tiny little story, this story of two widows in their poverty, and the stories of the acts of ordinary mercy and kindness from God's people that sustain them. And then we see by the end of Ruth that this tiny little story of two easily forgotten women becomes this larger, this this tiny part of this bigger story. That actually the story of the coming of the kingdom of God is intimately tied with the fate of Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. That Ruth is to become the the mother of the king, the the great-grandmother of King David. And in that, I think we're going to see that in our own lives, our own tiny, seemingly insignificant lives, that God is still working to build his kingdom through ordinary acts of mercy, ordinary works of kindness, that our little stories matter in the context of God's larger story. And so, this morning we're going to start in Ruth 1. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malan and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night, And should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. 
Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. Matthew Desmond is a Harvard sociologist who's given a lot of his research to understanding the housing crisis, the urban housing crisis uh, that we face as a country. He wrote a book last year called Eviction that uh, won numerous awards in the nonfiction world. It's an incredibly compelling story. But as he tells the story of the urban housing crisis, which if we're not aware, uh, which I wasn't uh, to, until reading this book, that it's become, it's, it's not uncommon in today's world for low-income families to spend up to 80% of their income on rent. Think about what that would mean for you and your family if 80% of what you brought in was taken right out from the very beginning to go to your landlord. It's not uncommon uh, for low-income families to face eviction about, about a quarter, uh, by his estimation, uh, in a given year of African-American women in inner-city Milwaukee uh, face eviction every year. Just stunning numbers. But what Desmond does in this book, rather than, uh, as you might expect, when you say a book by a Harvard sociologist, it doesn't exactly uh, sound like compelling beach reading as you head into the summer. But what he does is instead of just giving you statistics, because we all over time can become numb to statistics about poverty, instead of doing that, he follows eight families in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, eight low-income families as they seek to find stable and livable housing in Milwaukee. It's a heartbreaking read. One of the families that they follow, or that Matthew lived with for a while, is a woman named Arlene Bales and her two sons, Jory and Jafaris. It follows them as they go between seven and eight different apartments over the course of just over a year. Sometimes they were bounced from an apartment because they couldn't make rent on time as the winter came in and she had to choose between paying to keep the utilities on or paying the landlord oftentimes having to skip rent, getting behind, having to, to skip rent to get to her cousin's funeral, being unable to make it up in the following month. From one apartment, she's kicked out because her son, uh, in the winter again, throws a snowball at a passing car, and the police show up. They find no reason to charge her, but her landlord, knowing that his housing is below code, says, we can't have the police around here, you've got to go. And so you watch her and, and, and her children Young boys go from house to house, apartment to apartment. As the story ends, uh, she and her children are living with eight other people in a two-bedroom apartment uh, with a friend of hers, and if her friend uses the back bedroom uh, to make her own share of the rent. Just these abysmal conditions for a family to live in. And what happens is you get to know the people involved over the course of the story, and it grabs your heart. In Desmond's accounting, these are people who fall through a tear in our social fabric. People that a just society should be looking out for, should be seeking ways to provide fair housing prices for, slipping through the cracks. He says this in his conclusion. The home is the center of life. It's a refuge from the grind of work, the pressure of school, and the menace of the streets. The home is the wellspring of personhood, it's where our identity takes root and blossoms, where as children we imagine, play, and question, and as adolescents we retreat and try again. As we grow older, we hope to settle into a place to raise a family or to pursue our work. 
When we try to understand ourselves, we often begin by considering the kind of home in which we were raised. Residential stability begets the kind of psychological stability, which allows people to invest in their home and social relationships. It begets school stability, which increases the chances that children will excel and graduate. And it begets community stability, which encourages neighbors to form strong bonds and to take care of their block. This story of the housing crisis may seem like news to you. It might be a world that you had no idea uh, existed. It might seem quite non-surprising to you. It may feel like the world that you live in, daily trying to secure stable housing. But this story really puts us, uh, as we look at the story of Arlene and her boys, it helps us to understand a context for the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth, like, like the story of Arlene and others that Desmond follows, plugs us in intimately to the story, really, of two women, Ruth and Naomi, two widows in the ancient world. In the ancient world, widows were the most vulnerable people in the world. They were cut off uh, from the stability economically that husbands would have provided, the inheritance that children would have provided for them, left by themselves to figure out their way through a world without protection, without comfort. And they're left, really, you know, we said that in, in Desmond's account, these people are, are falling through tears in the social fabric. And really the question at the heart of the book of Ruth is will Ruth and Naomi fall through or will they be met with kindness and mercy from God and his people, right? Will they fall through? Will these widows be left in their destitution? Or will the fabric of faithfulness, the fabric of mercy and grace that's meant to be woven into the people of God, catch them in their fall, hold them in their mercy and sustain them? That uh, is the question at the heart of the book of Ruth. You know, it's more than a quaint little story. Right? It's more than a story with, with vividly drawn characters and a little bit of romance and a little bit of scandal. It's a story that I've come to believe through studying it, that far from being just a little short story out on the side, is actually central to the story of God's mission in the world. You see, the book of Ruth is found within a context. It's found within other books. We see it in verse 1 when the author says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So Ruth is roughly contemporary with the book of Judges, the books that come just before it in the Hebrew Bible. Right? If you've read the book of Judges, you know that the book of Judges describes a terrible, dark, and chaotic time in the life of Israel. One of the refrains that happens over and over and over in the book of Judges, the narrator says, in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? There was no law, there was no king. And so the people each went on his own way. The rich oppressed the poor, the strong and violent took what they wanted. From time to time, God would raise up judges to bring justice to his people, to bring protection from their enemies. But then after a while, it would just disintegrate into chaos again. It is a dark book. If you want a depressing read, go to the book of Judges. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year plan, when you come to the book of Judges, you need extra strong coffee and maybe, you know, you know just some help to get, through, to get through Judges. The best thing about the book of Judges is that it ends. 
right? It is just, it is, it is a depressing book. And right here in the middle of it, in the midst of this violent world, is Ruth. After Ruth, immediately following the story of Ruth, comes 1 Samuel. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles. These are the stories of God building his kingdom. These are the stories of the great king David coming to power. The, the, the story that would lead to the greatest prosperity and strength and righteousness and wholeness that Israel would ever know. And Ruth is the connective tissue between the chaos of judges and the hope of the kingdom. And so what we see in Ruth is that in the chaos of this world, God builds his kingdom through the mercy of his people. I'll say that again because it's going to be what we come back to over and over through the series. In the chaos of this world, God builds his kingdom through the mercy of his people. In the chaos of our world, in the moral ambiguity and the homelessness, the rootlessness that, that afflicts us in a secular age, in the poverty and despair and prejudice that can govern our social lives, in the chaos of that world, God is building his kingdom through the mercy of his people, through the ordinary mercy of ordinary people like us. And so that's what we're going to look at in the book of Ruth, is how can we extend God's mercy to our neighbors? How can we be a part of God's building his kingdom through our mercy to our neighbors? That is what we're going to look at today uh, and through the series. Today we're going to see uh, in, this, in this first chapter of Ruth that we can show mercy through our neighbors, to our neighbors by seeing their poverty and by imagining their restoration. Through seeing their poverty and imagining their restoration. You know, Ruth starts uh, with a rude introduction to sorrow and poverty. These, uh, the story starts uh, with Naomi and her husband leaving Bethlehem. You know, really, it's amazing uh, the way that this story uh, comes in and out of the city of Bethlehem, a city that literally in Hebrew means the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. So it's ironic that this house of bread, this house that was supposed to be a place of agricultural fertility, a place where there was kind of the bread basket of ancient Israel where the fields produced abundantly, that even there in Bethlehem, there was no bread, right? Bethlehem features in the book of Judges is one of the darkest places in Israel. This place that was meant to be a place of provision uh, actually probably features what I think is the darkest and most depressing story in the Hebrew Bible, a story of a Bethlehemite woman uh, who's violated, murdered, and dismembered at the, in the streets of Bethlehem. Bethlehem had become a dark place. And yet by the end of Ruth, uh, by the beginning of Samuel, Bethlehem becomes the city of kings, the house of David, the place where even Jesus, the great king, would come from. But when we meet it here, it's destitute, it's impoverished, it's in the midst of a famine, both materially and spiritually. And so Naomi and her husband set out, trying to escape the famine to find food. They marry, uh, so, I'm sorry, Naomi and her husband have, have two sons. The sons marry Moabite women. And then all of the men of the family die. So three widows are left together in a foreign land, a Hebrew woman and two Moabite women, left without anything, left impoverished and destitute. The author is building uh, this vivid picture of what poverty really looks like 
of what sorrow really looks like. Famine, lack of material food, socially left without a net, without husbands, physically left barren and unable to have children. These women find themselves without hope. Naomi says, uh, renames herself, says, call me Mara, call me bitter, because what I've been given is, is only bitterness. This is a picture of absolute poverty, absolute destitution. What is poverty? What is, how do you define poverty? Is it simply the lack of monetary goods? Is it the lack of enough, enough food, enough money? Certainly that's a part of it. But in the largest survey that was done, that's ever been done on the views of poverty, you know what researchers found? Is that uh, the materially poor and the materially rich the world over define poverty very, very differently. Uh, the, the materially rich tend to defer, define poverty mostly in terms of the lack of wealth. It's primarily determined in the lack of, of, of your bank account's not full enough. You just don't have enough money to make ends meet. That's the way that in the first world, in the developed world, and even within it, the wealthy tend to think of poverty. But the materially poor are much more likely to describe poverty as a poverty of relationships is a breakdown of relationships. That they're in need and there's no one there that they can call out to. That there's no one there who's looking out for them or for their children. That there's not a social fabric that's there to catch them when you can't make the, the ends meet on the bills. When you find yourself thrown out on the street, there's no, there's no parents, there's no grandparents, there's no cousins, there's no friends. There's no one with the resources to help and the heart to help that fundamentally poverty is a poverty of relationships. And that's what we see in Ruth and Naomi, is that their poverty is a relational poverty. It's a poverty that, that's marked by a, a broken uh, relationship to the material world, right? That, that the world, that what was meant to be a house of bread isn't providing for them as it was designed to. From a poverty in the relational world left without, without husbands and without heirs. It's a, it's a relational poverty. Certainly at the beginning, it's even a spiritually relational poverty. For, for, uh, for Ruth especially, as a woman who was cut, off, uh, was, a, uh, was cut off from God's people, cut off from the true faith of Israel, that poverty is this, relation, this broken relational network. And if poverty is relational, then, then each one of us can look at our lives and acknowledge our poverty. Right? We can each look at our lives and look at broken relationships. We can look at the ways that our relationship within ourselves are broken, our relationship with the world around us and our work, the relationships that we, that we share uh, with our neighbors and our friends, that each one of us should look at our own lives and acknowledge our poverty and then look uh, at our neighbors and see their poverty. That poverty is fundamentally a lack of having anyone around you to turn to. In Kendrick Lamar, this is an interesting reference for a Presbyterian church, in Kendrick Lamar's latest album, Kendrick Lamar is a, is a rapper and one of the most articulate voices of urban poverty uh, that we have. In his most recent album, he describes poverty multiple times in the line, I ain't got nobody praying for me. Right, think about the hopelessness in those words. I don't have anybody praying for me. Not only am I living in the midst of poverty, but there's no one who can help me and there's no one who's even thinking about me in bringing me in prayer before God. There's nobody looking out for me. There's no one caring for me. There's no one praying for me. 
And so the invitation of Ruth is an invitation to look at our own poverty and to look at the poverty of our neighbors with compassion. To feel it, to not just look at it as statistics, but to feel it in our bones and to acknowledge that it's real. That it's real. And if it's primary relational, if it's primarily relational, then its solutions can, can be solved, not just by throwing money at it, not just by giving, uh, giving charity, but by entering in relationally, by giving our lives into the poverty of our neighbors. And so it imagines, at first we see our neighbors in their sorrow and in their poverty. Whether they appear to be materially rich or materially poor, the gospel calls us to look on our neighbors with compassion. Right, That spiritual poverty, the lack of a spiritual home and a spiritual rootedness, calls us just as much as material poverty to look out at our neighbors in love and in compassion. And then it calls us to imagine their restoration. You know, this, this question that drives the book of Ruth from the first chapter onward, will anyone have mercy on Ruth and on Naomi? That question is what builds the narrative tension behind the book. Ruth's name actually means mercy means mercy, refreshment. And so the question that drives it is, will anybody show mercy to Ruth? And the narrator starts to, even from the first pages, to build up in the reader this imagination of what will happen to them. What will happen to Naomi and Ruth? Will they fall through the cracks or will God's people come around them? You know, over and over again in the pages of the Old Testament, you ever read the, the law of the Old Testament and think that it just sounds strange? Right? There are, there are uh, from modern ears, some bizarre things that are commanded in the Old Testament. Commands about how you should uh, deal with it if your ox, you know, wanders off your field and gores somebody. Right? It's like, that's, that doesn't seem particularly helpful for me to read in my devotional life. Or stories about how you should, uh, if somebody falls off your roof, whether or not you're obligated to, to pay. Stories about how to, how to harvest your field and whether or not you should kick off uh, aliens and widows if they come gleaning off of your field, right? How much of your field belongs to you, how much of it belongs to them, right? There's these stories and these laws that seem strange to us, but the key to understanding most of the social laws of the Old Testament is that they were put in place to protect the most weak and vulnerable in society. They were put in place to protect women like Naomi and like Ruth. Women who are left as aliens, right? No, not Israelites, but, but wanderers who'd come into the midst of the community. Put in place to protect widows who didn't have in that society the husbands that were necessary to root them into an inheritance. Meant to protect the poor and the vulnerable. The word that comes out over and over again in Ruth, the Hebrew word hesed, comes up over and over again. It's what, uh, what Naomi says to Ruth here, that maybe God will show you kindness. Sometimes it's translated kindness. Sometimes it's translated mercy. What it means, it's a word that's used primarily of God's unfailing kindness and mercy to his people. But it also comes to describe God's people's mercy and kindness to, their, to one another. And so the question that drives Ruth is what will compassion and mercy and kindness look like? Will that fabric of covenant love and loyalty hold? Or has it evaporated to the point that they'll fall through? And what the author of Ruth invites us to imagine 
is what it looks like for the people of God to offer real mercy and real care for Ruth and Naomi. That the story is ultimately answered, that question is ultimately answered with yes, God will show mercy to Ruth and Naomi. And he's going to do it through the mercy of his people. Right? God is not just going to cause bread to fall down on them. Right? God is not just going to drop a husband out of the sky to give to Ruth. But no, it's going to come through the work and the love and the faithfulness of his people. And that's the way that God's redemptive history goes forward from the Old Testament through Jesus, through the church to today. The kingdom goes forward through the mercy of God's people. The way that Jesus puts it, the way that Jesus puts it in Matthew 13, he tells him the story. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Right? This is the vision of the people of God and the kingdom of God. That it's like a mustard seed that grows into this vibrant tree that's the church. You know, the small mustard seed of the gospel grows into this vibrant living tree. And in that tree, the birds find shelter and find rest and find sustenance. That God's picture of the kingdom is the church growing, not just to grow itself, but to provide sheltering mercy for all who come into contact with it, to find shelter and mercy for its neighbors as well. It's the mercy of God that drives forward the story of the Old Testament. It's God's mercy that we see in Abraham's hospitality and mercy to the three strangers who visit them. It's the mercy in the, Deuteron- the laws of Deuteronomy towards the most vulnerable. It's the mercy of God in the early church that led them to share their possessions with one another such that the author of Acts can say that there was no poor among them, that they so radically shared their goods with one another that nobody could be counted as poor because everyone had enough. It was the mercy of God that led the early church to reach out beyond itself and to offer mercy and compassion, not just for their own poor, but even for for the poor of the Romans and the Greeks and the Jews. You know, the story of the early church uh, is in many ways the story of the radical expansion of God's mercy. Rodney Stark is a historian who's done extensive work on explaining the reasons for the expansion of the early church. His central question is, is to think, what is it that allowed a sect of a small religion in a province of the Roman Empire? Right, Because of the significance of the scriptures in our own life, and our own story, we can think of them as the main thing going on in history. But if you were a Roman citizen living around the time of Jesus, Christianity, or, or in the immediate aftermath of Jesus, Christianity was an offshoot of a sect of a tiny, weird religion that was practiced in a tiny little province that if you could avoid it, you would. Right, This was an offshoot of Judaism that was viewed as completely uh, weird and superstitious and bizarre. So how, over the course of about 300 years, did that weird little religion come to take over the Roman Empire to to the point that even the emperor himself converted and that ultimately would become the majority religion in the known world? Right? How did that process happen in what really historically is the blink of an eye? How did it happen? Right now, as Christians, we would look back and say, well, 
the power of the gospel, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, the reality of the message, the converting power of the Spirit on those who heard the apostolic message. But Stark is trying to look at it and saying, as a historian, supernatural reasons excluded. Why did Christianity spread at the rate that it spread? And one of the main answers that he comes up with is that Christians fundamentally reinvented mercy as a concept. That the way that they showed mercy and compassion was utterly alien in the Roman world. He quotes uh, many Roman philosophers uh, that state that basically uh, mercy was viewed not as a virtue, but as a weakness in the ancient world, right? To give grace, to give love, to give compassion for someone who didn't deserve it. Far from like we would say, even, even the secular uh, world today would say, oh, that's good, charity's a good thing. But in the ancient world, it was viewed as a sign of childishness, right? That you were being too sympathetic, you were being too led by your heart. You know, why would you give mercy to somebody who's clearly shown they don't, they're not worthy? They, they're clearly, if they found themselves down and out, it's because they're foolish and they deserve it. And that Christianity fundamentally changed this. This is the way that uh, Stark puts it. He says, in the midst of the squalor, misery, illness, and anonymity of ancient cities, Christianity provided an island of mercy and security. Right in a world where everybody else viewed mer uh, mercy as a moral defect, Christians were urged to show mercy over and over again to the poorest of the poor and the most vulnerable of society. So that when Cyprian of Carth Carthage in the third century, the bishop of Carthage, ended up dying a martyr's death, he writes this, there is nothing remarkable in cherishing merely our own people with the due attentions of love, but good must be done to all men, not merely to the household of faith. Right, so here's a bishop urging his people to show mercy, not just to the Christian poor, but to all people, to show God's mercy. In 251, the bishop of Rome wrote a letter to the bishop of Antioch where he, where he notes that the Roman church was supporting 1,500 widows and distressed people. Right, these, this is a church that grew up with, with Ruth, the story of Ruth woven into its DNA and other stories like it. So they're providing material help for 1,500 widows in the Roman world. Stark continues, the Christians of the ancient world ran a miniature welfare state in an empire which for the most part lacked social services. And these charitable activities were possible only because Christianity generated congregations, a true community of believers who built their lives around their religious affiliation. So his picture is that it was the mercy of God flowing through the earliest Christian church that caused the pagans to look up from their worship and say, wow, wow, their mercy, their compassion. In a world where nobody showed it, where even the state didn't provide it, he says that the Christians provided the, the mercy that allowed the poor to flourish uh, in the ancient world. This is the church's story. We've, we've been more or less faithful to it over the course of our 2,000 years, right? At some times, there's these great high moments of the church's mercy shining forth, like in Stark's research. There's other times where we seem so lost in our own self-protection and our own concerns that we largely neglect the call to mercy. But the church's call is a call to extend God's mercy. Why? Why? What, what was it that led these earliest Christians 
to view their calling fundamentally as a calling to mercy? Well, it's because these are people uh, who recognize that this is the way that Christ has loved us. Right, seeing our neighbors in their poverty and reimagining what their good and their flourishing might look like. That's exactly what Jesus has done for us. He sees us in our poverty. He doesn't only see us in it, but he actually enters into it with us. Right, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he who was rich became poor. Right, Jesus left all of the wealth of heaven, the wealth that he knew at his Father's right hand from all eternity, and didn't just see our poverty and throw us a few bucks didn't just give us some money and say, get on with your life. He actually entered into it with us. He became a Galilean peasant. Yeah, we look at being born in a manger as a religious thing somehow now. He was born in a barn, (laughs) surrounded by animals and it stunk, grew up in a backwater village as a peasant, as a carpenter's son, lived as an itinerant minister who who the Gospels tell us didn't have a place to rest his head, didn't have a home to call his own, but lived on the the mercy of strangers and those who loved him. He grew up poor. He lived poor. He preached the Gospel. He preached his message in the midst of opposition. Ultimately, he died a peasant's death on the cross, a foreigner's death on the cross, exposed to utter shame, utter poverty, utter suffering, and yet there in the grave, as we celebrated at Easter, the Father did more than just imagine his, rec- his restoration, more than just imagined what fullness might look like, but he actually came from death to life, into new life, into new wholeness, remade. That's why every Christian effort at mercy, every Christian effort at pursuing our neighbor's good and their, uh, their flourishing, their restoration, begins with the resurrection. Right, it's only possible because we serve a resurrected Savior who tells us not only in his words but in his own life that in Christianity, dead things do get resurrected, empty things get filled, uh, the dead are raised. That the, when Christians enter into loving our neighbors, we do so with the hope of resurrection. You know, it's, it's hard enough for me to imagine my own restoration in Christ. Right, it's hard enough for me to imagine that I'm going to get any better, right? that I'm going to experience any significant change over my own broken soul, my own broken relationships, my own broken life, my own patterns, my own sin. It's hard enough for me to imagine my own restoration, let alone to imagine the restoration of my neighbors, to imagine their flourishing in Christ, their wholeness. And yet the gospel, because of the resurrection, calls us to exactly that, to enter in to the sorrow of our neighbors, and to imagine their reconciliation to God, their restoration to wholeness. And that's what we're going to look. We're going to look to Ruth with that question. How can God use normal people like us to build his kingdom in the midst of the brokenness of this world? Let's pray that he'll lead us in that. Lord, we pray that you would make us into merciful people, Lord, we know what it is uh, to be so wrapped up in ourselves, to be so wrapped up in our own comforts and our own security that we lose sight of our neighbors. Maybe the neighbors who live right next door to us or maybe the neighbors who live across town from us. But Lord, we can miss our neighbors so easily. 
Lord Jesus, we pray that as we turn to you, as we experience your mercy in our life, your compassion in our life, that it would change our hearts to become people who extend mercy in our city, in our place. Lord, in the chaos and brokenness of this world, we look to you to build your kingdom. We know that our hands are too frail, our imaginations too impoverished, to build your kingdom through our own ingenuity. And so, Lord, we look to you. We look to you to show us how, to show us what it means to be merciful neighbors. Lord, as we live by mercy, as we experience your mercy, Lord, we pray that you would help us to love our neighbors as you are loving us daily. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But one of the ways that the gospel is transforming us into being merciful neighbors, into being good neighbors, is in the way that it changes the way we handle our money. It moves us from being greedy people who hold on and hoard everything we have into generous people who give freely. And so we're going to give now as an act of worship. If you're new with us, we don't want you to feel any guilt or compulsion to give, but we give as an act of worship and as a way of participating in the work of God, both in this church and in our city and around the world. So if this is your church, we ask that you give and give generously. God feeds the hungry. It's what he does. We see it over and over in the pages of the scriptures that he meets us in the midst of at times our physical hunger, but that in leaving us this meal, he shows us that, that we are fundamentally hungry people. We are people who are spiritually starving 
for grace, for the presence of God for which we're made. And then we come to this table, this broken bread and this shed, uh, this shed blood. We come to the table that meets our deepest hunger. This table is not for the full and the satisfied, those who come in believing that we can fill ourselves, that we're good enough, that we've done enough. This is for the empty. This is for the hungry and the thirsty, those who come to God recognizing our sin and our emptiness and look to him for grace, for forgiveness, and for filling. If that's you, you are welcome to join us at this table. You don't have to be a member of this church. Simply someone who recognizes their need of a Savior and who recognizes Christ as your Savior. If you're here with us and that's not you yet, if you're here and you're investigating Christianity, we're so glad that you're here. We just ask that you wait until you can come with the rest of us in a common faith, acknowledging a common Savior. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, we declare the mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again.